and the Penge Bungalow Murders by John Mortimer. Adapted by Richard Stoneman. Starring me, Timothy West, as the elder Horace Rumpole, and Benedict Cumberbatch as the younger Horace Rumpole. Part 1. Old Unhappy Far-Off Things. So, do you live around here yourself, Peter? In Penge? You must be joking. I've got a place in Chelsea. It's a flat, not a bungalow. Oh. This is very nice, though. Very cosy. Martin, it's absolutely ghastly. Get away! Right now! No! I promise you, I'll kill the first of you that touches me. The events in that bungalow on that fateful night not only changed the course of my career, but also launched me into the domestic bliss which I've endured, <laughs> enjoyed, for more years than I care to remember. There are still a number of unanswered questions concerning my long and eventful life. How and why did I come to marry Hilda? How and why did I come to defend a young man called Simon Gerald, alone and without a leader? The answers are not unconnected, thanks to the late lamented father of she who must be obeyed. We don't lunch with our instructing solicitor. C.H. Whiston, QC, oh, no. always reminded me of a lobster snatched from the sea and plunged into boiling water. His face and bald head were of a uniform pink. We don't shake hands with other members of the bar. But he was in no way a bad yes, man. Of course. In fact, he treated me, during my early years in his chambers, with a sort of remote and distant kindness. I think that's enough advice from me. Oh, really? Thank you. Our head clerk, Albert, will brief you on briefs. Ah, here we are. It's like Guinness from me, Mr. Rumpole. Most kind of you, I'm sure. I did my very best to cultivate the friendship of Albert Handyside. I spent time and money I could ill afford in Pomeroy's wine bar, seeing that his glass was continually filled with stout, while I opted for the house red, despite Albert's warning. It's not exactly a vintage claret. Mm. No, 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 it's uh, more your non-vintage Chateau Thames Embankment. <laughs> that's, that's very good. That's very good. Chateau Thames Embankment. Oh, they're very good indeed. Oh. When I look back on that rumpole, I can scarcely recognise my former self. And another one indeed, I'm not day. at all sure that I would like him, were it not for the fact that he gave me some hints of the rumpole to come. <laughs> The war had been over for several years by then. My own war had been unheroic. Just a little time in the RAF ground staff, but for many, the hostilities had taken their toll and left some of them with bitter memories of colleagues and friends lost in the heat of battle. Dennis Gerald, always known as Jerry, and his rear gunner, Charlie Best, flew in bombers together during the war. By chance, they ended up living just a few doors apart. Jerry's wife was killed by a buzz bomb near Oxford Circus in 1945. 
leaving Jerry to raise their son, Simon, all by himself. It was in number three Paxton Street, in the heart of Penge, that Jerry was murdered, and in number seven that Charlie died, both shot with a Luger pistol taken from the body of a dead German officer. He's a good dog, never run away before. I can give you a description if you like. Constable. Constable. Can I help you, son? You might want to arrest me. My dad's dead. Someone shot him. Oh, my God. But it wasn't me. Ooh. Right. It's, it's probably best if you get yourself a lawyer. Uh, do you have one? Uh, I don't think so. Then I'll fix you up. We've got some good ones in Penge. Barnsley Goff. Have you heard of him? I doubt many people had heard of Barnsley Goff. I know I hadn't. But it wasn't long before we met, thanks to the machinations of two very different young ladies. Miss Daisy Sampson was a clerk in the firm of Micklethwaite and Nutwell. Blonde, cheerful, uninhibited, she was a girl with a ready smile, slightly protruding front teeth, and away with fairly basic <laughs> jokes. Oh, I'm always going to give you my briefs, Mr. Rumpel. Which I found in those far-off years both provocative and witty. After sharing morning coffees and pub lunches round the Uxbridge Magistrates, Old Street, Bow Street and the Horse Ferry Road, I decided, in a moment of reckless extravagance, to hire a dinner jacket and invite Daisy to a dance in the Inner Temple Hall. Oh, that's it. You're doing very well. Ow! Oh. My fault, sorry. <laughs> hey there, that girl's far too pretty for you to be dancing with. Well, that's as may be, Proudfoot. But Miss Sampson is my partner. Not now. This is the gentleman's excuse. Oh, hey, calm, Daisy. Oh. <laughs> I turned to see a fresh-faced and determined-looking woman of my own age finishing an ice cream. I was, as I was so rarely to be in the future, lost for words. You are Rumpole, aren't you? That's what I heard Reggie Proudfoot just call you. Uh, well, uh, yes, I am Rumpole. I thought so. And you're in Daddy's chambers. Daddy? I'm Hilda. Hilda Whiston. Aren't you going to ask me to dance? It was less a question than a command. Would you like to dance? And I found myself obeying her. I'm off now, Horace. Reggie's driving me home and says he goes right past Dagenham. On his way to Hampstead? Oh, I suppose so. Night, then. <sighs> Night. Ah, there you are. I have to go. Daddy's waiting downstairs. Right. But we'll meet again. Soon. Sooner than you might expect. And I was left on my own to wonder what Hilda Whiston had meant by her last doom-laden remark. How's your liver? <clears throat> my, uh, my, my liver. Oh, this liver. Um, very tasty, thank you. Not too tough. Do stop fussing, Daddy. Rumpole doesn't care about his food. He wants to hear the news you have for him. Mm, all in good time. This is because Albert likes the cut of your jib. Isn't that true, Daddy? And it's so important to get on well with the clerk. That doesn't mean you have to join the clerk in the saloon bar or anything of that nature. Rumpole understands that, don't you, Rumpole? Oh, yes, I understand it perfectly. Hmm. You'll take some port? I would have been happier with a bottle of Pomeroy's Plonk. 
than a glass of vintage Coburn's. Yes, please. Horrible business, this Penge bungalow affair. A fellow shooting his father. Well, we don't know he shot his father. I mean, we shan't know that until the jury comes back with a verdict of guilty. The opinion of any jury is likely to be dead against young Gerald. So he's a client who desperately needs defending brilliantly. Is what I should have said. Well, I expect you'll have some problems. Is all I could manage. Not problems. Impossibilities. Two war heroes murdered. Men who saved our nation. Two of the few who went on fearless bombing raids. Surely the few were fighter pilots. The point is, they were shot down over occupied France and managed to get back to England only to become victims of a senseless shooting by the boy Simon Gerald. Would you rather he'd shot a couple of conscientious objectors? Is what I should have said. Mm. Is all I could manage. As you probably know... I've been offered the leading brief in R.V. Gerald by a firm of solicitors in Penge. They've asked me to nominate a junior. It was Hilda who put your name forward. Oh. Why not give young Rumpole a chance, Daddy? Uh, she always calls me Daddy. <laughs> yes. Yes, I know. You'll be expected to take a full note of the evidence and look up points of law. But I shan't expect you to open your mouth. For the first time in my legal career, my brief contained photographs of a dead man. Oh, my word. Look at him. Still sitting in his chair. Jerry Gerald had been found by the police photographer in the bungalow's living room. Oh, no. The man in the chair looked at ease. Glazed eyes, neat hair... A blazer flannel with flannel trousers, trousers and an, an RAF tie. tie. Only the dark stain on his shirt spreading across his chest indicated the cause of death. But I didn't do it. I never shot Dad or Charlie. I'd been in prisons before, of course, visiting minor villains... But Simon Gerald was accused of a double murder. And my leader seemed to think he might as well admit his guilt and save us a lot of trouble. But I think we're all agreed, Gerald, that it's going to be extremely difficult to provide a successful defence in your particular case. At the plain wooden table sat Simon's legal team. Next to C.H. Whiston, Q.C., was our instructing solicitor, Barnsley Goff. Now, Mr. Gerald... You were heard to threaten your father with the gun. Mr. Goff came with a clerk, whom he called Bernard. We do have a full list he of was answers. as young, if not younger, than our client, and had a fresh, keen look about him. Bernard listened intently and took notes. But I never shot Dad. You've told us that, but the evidence is against you. Oh. Mr. Whiston takes the view that the evidence is so black that we must... You must be prepared for the worst. We considered guilty but insane, but unfortunately the doctors wouldn't play ball. They gave you high marks for intelligence. So we're thrown back on the facts. To establish the facts, if I may, Simon, your father and numerous friends from the RAF returned from the theatre to the bungalow, drunk and raucous, oh. waking yourself and insisting you pour them whiskey. Rumpole, that will do. When I need a summary of the evidence, I shall ask. I'm sorry. Hmm. Just trying to be helpful. 
Uh, <clears throat> we should probably move on to what was said at the party. Uh, I promise you I'll kill the first of you that touches me. Hmm. A witness, ex-pilot officer Peter Benson, claims you uttered those words whilst waving a Luger pistol at your father and his friends. They were going to pull my trousers off. Dad wanted them to punish me. Why? For getting kicked out of the army. Charlie was the worst. But I never shot him. I never shot anyone. I handed over the gun and, and went to bed. You handed over the gun to whom? <sighs> Rumpole. Sorry, still just trying to be helpful. Peter Benson took the Luger off me. I stayed in my room for the rest of the night. When I woke up, Dad was dead. I got dressed and left. Why didn't you call the police straight away? I thought I'd get the blame because of what happened with the gun. You were right there, my lad. But I turned myself in. When I'd had some time to think about it... Did you go to Charlie Best's bungalow during the night? Not at all. Did you shoot Mr Best in his bungalow? Never. You do realise that your failure to call for an ambulance or the police when you first found your father adds considerably to our difficulties. You would agree with that, Mr Goff? I certainly would. It's the stumbling block. You mean you can't help me? When you found your father dead, where was the gun? Oh, um, I, I didn't see it anywhere. It was found in a dustbin by the back door. Two bullets had been fired. Yes, I'm aware of that, thank you. Simon, did you wipe your fingerprints off the gun and the magazine? No, no, I never, I never did that. What are you suggesting, Rumpole? Who says they were wiped off? Uh, actually, the forensic science report says it. Huh? Here, sir. Page 56 of the depositions. I was grateful to the young office boy, uh, Bernard. I see. The gun and magazine had evidently been wiped. There were no fingerprints of any sort. Exactly, but everyone had seen our client holding the gun. What would have been the point of his wiping off his own fingerprints? You must forgive Mr Rumpole. He is, like yourself, a young man. He will take a full note of the evidence, and that is all. The questions will be asked by myself, and I will, of course, make the final speech to the jury on your behalf. Does that set your mind at rest? Simon Gerald did not look as though his mind was at rest. bump into you. I'm waiting for Daddy to come back from court and take me out to dinner. Hmm. Got any particular message for him? Blood. What about it? There were bloodstains in the bungalow, in Penge. Well, of course there were bloodstains if the wretched boy shot his father. We have to presume he didn't. Why on earth should we presume that? Because the law tells us to. <laughs> the presumption of innocence doesn't mean that some people aren't guilty. If you could just tell your father that I've had some ideas about the blood... Oh, I don't think Daddy will be very interested in that sort of thing. Perhaps you could tell me what part of the defence does interest Daddy. Daddy always says that the job of a defending counsel is to wrap the client in a cloak of respectability. I happen to believe that bloodstains might be more useful to Simon than a cloak of respectability. Who's Simon? Simon Gerald, the prisoner at the bar. Daddy just calls him Gerald. I don't think he's ever referred to him as Simon. Well, perhaps he should. Then the jury might think of him as a human being, a boy. It's possible they've got sons of his age. Rumpole, I think for your future career, after R.V. Gerald's over, you should concentrate on civil law. I hardly know any civil law. 
then you should brush up on it. Daddy always says that civil law is so much cleaner than crime. I don't agree. To me, criminal law is all about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. Civil law is only about money, an uninteresting subject. You'll probably think differently when it comes to getting married. If I ever do, I'm sure I'll be able to rub along on a life of crime. Hmm. Your wife will expect more than that. By the way, you know how you landed the junior brief in R.V. Gerald? Your father said you recommended me. I did. When it comes to questions of your career, I have your interests at heart. Okay. Hello. Yes, Daddy. Where should I meet you? She hurried away to Simpsons in the Strand. I was left to worry more about the bloodstains in Penge, and less than perhaps I should about why Hilda Whiston was planning my future career at the bar. In my comparative innocence, I hadn't noticed that the dark clouds were gathering not only over Simon Gerald, but over much of Rumpole's life to come. It's quite like old times, Horace. Yes, Daisy. Like the old times before you danced away from me. Oh, it was the gentleman's excuse me. That gentleman excused himself far too much, if you want my opinion. Well, that other girl seemed keen enough to dance with you. That other girl happens to be the daughter of my head of chambers. <laughs> Didn't stop her wanting to dance with you, did it? Oh. In the canteen at London Sessions, I Fair bit point. into my buttered bun. Fair point. What Daisy Sampson had just said seemed to point to a road down which I was not yet prepared to travel. Mm. I suppose I should thank you for this brief today. I thought it might be a good idea for you to meet the Timpsons. There's more than one. A huge number over there. Hmm? Oh, yeah. They've all turned up to see Uncle Cyril sent back to prison. They mm. reckon he needs a lot of support. They look like a reliable group. Mm. Shall I call some of them as character witnesses? <laughs> Better not. They've had more convictions than you've had hot dinners. Mm, what do they do? Crime. Nothing violent, nothing spectacular. Just ordinary decent breaking and entering, that sort of thing. But the best thing about them is the amount of work they provide for the legal profession. It was when she said this that I was prepared to forgive Daisy her infidelity at the Inner Temple Ball. Let's talk to Uncle Cyril. I'm going to plead guilty. Uncle Cyril was short and plump with greying hair. I judged him to be in his sixties. He smiled a lot and seemed grateful for my visit. The, 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 the charge is that you broke into Sound Universe, a radio and television shop in Cold Harbour Lane, and stole six radios, one television set, five alarm clocks, four electric kettles, oh, and one small egg timer. You were then seen putting those items into your van at two o'clock in the morning. I've never been out of bed at two o'clock in the morning, never in my life. And I don't have no van. Ah, well then. I'm still pleading guilty. But you'll be sent back to prison. Where I'll be safe. Safe from what? The Malloys. The Malloys and the Timpsons hate each other. Uh, who are these Malloys? Another big family in the same bit of London. The Malloys do crime that's neither ordinary nor decent. The Malloys won't never forgive me over the Meadow Sweet Building Society job. I just bumped into Purcell. Hmm? Detective Inspector White. And he yeah. asked me if I'd got anything I could give him. He wanted an alarm clock? He wanted information. Oh. I might have mentioned there was talk of Jimmy Malloy doing the Meadow Sweet job. For which Jimmy got three years. So now they've fingered me to Purcell for the radios and the TVs and what have you. But you didn't do it? Well, of course I didn't. But if I go inside, they won't be able to touch me. 
Reckon I'll get sent to Wandsworth. Jimmy Malloy, you went up north somewhere. I can't do it. Well, you can't do what, Mr. Rumpel? I absolutely refuse to be the first barrister who's pleaded guilty for a customer he knows is innocent. However attractive you find the idea of prison, Mr. Timpson. You reckon I ought to fight it? I know you have to fight it. <sighs> if you won't listen to me, perhaps I might have a word with your family. They were all assembled in the canteen. Harry Timpson, head of the clan. Mr. Rumpole, is it? Meet the wife, Brenda. All right. Uh, hello. Uh, and you must be... Freddy. But you can call me Fred. In line to succeed his father, Fred was there with his warm-hearted wife. Hello. We haven't met, have we? Um, I think I'd remember. Vi, <laughs> yes. whom I was to defend on many a shoplifting charge in the future. Were you looking for a new motor at all? Uh, Dennis, an expert on forged logbooks and clocking cars, as I was to discover in the years to come. Oh, leave the young man alone. He looks to me like he needs a bit of a lie-down. <laughs> oh, Doris, the wife of Dennis, had a glamorous and heavy-lidded expression a tight sweater, and enough perfume to drown a small furry animal. I was only a white wig, taking on a Timpson brief at the last moment, but I have to say I have never been listened to with as much courteous attention by any of the judges who deal in crime as I received from the right, Timpson um, family. <clears throat> May it please you, members of the Timpson family, what Cyril is asking for is an ignominious surrender to the forces of evil. It is only a few years since we emerged victorious from a war with a ruthless enemy with whom I'm sure the Malloys would have had much in common. <laughs> well, did, 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 did we quietly surrender to the Wehrmacht and to the SS? Hmm? Did, we, did we say politely, it's all our fault, so please walk over us with your stormtroopers and your jackboots? Hmm? We did not. We fought back and told the truth, and in the end, we won. And if we hadn't, what would have happened, eh? The world would have been ruled by the Nazis. I was in a Churchillian mood. Uh, we must fight them in Cold Harbor Lane. We must fight them on Streatham Hill. And we must fight them in Clapham. We must never surrender. Well, that's easy for him to say. He gets my vote. Well, you don't know the Malloy's vibe. He's very persuasive, isn't he? Yeah, what are you looking at him like that for, Doris? I'm just listening, that's all. No harm in that. But this case was down as a plea of guilty, Mr. Rugbold. Your client is causing a good deal of trouble with the lists. I'm sure your honour would agree that any amount of trouble with the lists is less important than Mr. Timpson's right to a fair hearing. You are of quite recent call to the bar. Perhaps in future you will be able to control your client's inconvenient changes of mind. I hope not, Your Honour. Was what I should have said? I hope not, Your Honour. Was what I did say. And the judge, Custodial Cookson, looked as though he would have liked to say a good deal more. Instead, he told me we'd be informed of the new date and, and we were refused bail. So, Uncle Cyril was remanded, for a while at least, within the safety of the prison walls. I was gazing once more at the photographs of the scene of the crime, what my old tutor at Keeble had taught me to call the locus in quo. Ah, yes, so there he is, dead. The door a little open. 
Should I go for a chop in the lion's corner house? Another question occurred to me. I put a call through to the offices of our Penge solicitors. Mr. Goff's telephone? Yes, is uh, Mr. Goff there, please? It's Horace Rumpole. I'm afraid he had to leave. Can I help at all, Mr. Rumpole? Is that Bernard? Yes, Mr. Rumpole. The memory of his boyish open countenance came back to me. Hail, Bonnie Bernard! That name has stuck over the years. Hello, Mr. Rumpole. Years during which, apart from a few moments what of regrettable infidelity, well, Bonnie Bernard has been my perpetual support. It has occurred to me, Bonnie, that I would like to take a look at the Locus. He's in it. What? Our client is in the lock, whatever you said. No, 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 Bonnie Bernard. The locus in quo, the scene of the crime. Can we see it? Oh, I don't know. You'll just have to fix it with the officer in charge of the case and tell the prosecution they're entitled to be there. And your leader? Oh, I'll tell Mr. Whiston all about it, of course. It's just down here, on the left. The policeman's there already. I'm not sure if Mr. Proudfoot will be able to join us. Ah, oh, well, we'll just have to cope with our disappointment. Thank you, Constable. Well, this is it, Mr. Rumpole. Can you picture this room on the night of the murders? I'm not sure I can. Seems a little small, doesn't it, to accommodate a party of half a dozen half-drunk wartime heroes? Is this the the armchair where they, you know, where they found him? Hmm. You should sit there. Why? Well, so we can imagine I'm pointing a luger at you. All right, I'll play along with this, Mr. Rumpole. But I'm not sure I should. Can I fire this weapon now? What weapon? Well, you have to pretend my finger is the barrel of a gun. <coughs> I, if... I don't believe Mr. Whiston would have asked his instructing solicitor to sit down upon the exhibits... Sir. Sorry, Constable. It won't happen again. I can understand, Rumpole, how your connection with an important case has led you astray. It has caused you to make an error of judgment. I just thought you were probably too busy to visit the scene of the crime yourself. No. You wanted to do something on your own. I understand that. The feeling was perfectly natural. You've read my notes? Of course I've read your notes, dear boy. It was the first time that Hilda's father had called me dear boy. But there is one unfortunate fact that you seem to have overlooked. One question I would suggest that for all your industry you failed to ask. If young Gerald didn't shoot his father or Charles Best, then who on earth did... The duty of the leader is to lead Mr Rumpole. It's for him to decide what witnesses to call and the general conduct of the case. It's the duty of the junior to take a full I note... I know, Albert, it's the junior's duty to take a full note of the evidence and occasionally buy his leader a cup of coffee. You've got it, Mr Rumpole. Sorry, excuse me. Oh, they said in the clerk's room you'd be here. Bonnie Bernard! I've been making inquiries as per your instructions. Does Mr Whiston know about this? When we get some results, he'll be the first to know. 
The Bristol bombers flown by Jerry and Charlie had three men on board. They always had a man called Galloway as their navigator. David Galloway. Can we call him, get a statement? Afraid not. Galloway went missing, believed dead. Thank you for the Guinness. I told Mr Whiston I'd have a word with you and I've done that. Please bear in mind what I've said. Of course I shall. But there's one thing more important than keeping my leader happy. What's that? Trying to save young Simon's life. I only hope, Mr Rumpole, that you're as clever as you think you are. Mr Rochford, you live over the radio shop Sound Universe in Cold Harbour Lane, Brixton? Yeah, that's right, yeah. As soon as I'd started my cross-examination of the chief prosecution witness in Uncle Cyril's case, a misleading confidence came over me. Behind me were the troops I had persuaded to follow me into battle, the Timpson family. In the dock, Uncle Cyril was smiling in a detached sort of way, as though the proceedings were really nothing much to do with him. Uh, perhaps you'd like to tell us what time you and your wife went to bed the night that Cyril Timpson is alleged to have broken into your shop. Mr. Rumpole, could you confine your cross-examination to relevant matters? Or are you going to inquire at what time Mr. and Mrs. Rochford drank their final cup of Horlicks? <laughs> I think the jury may be interested in the suggestion that Mr. and Mrs. Rochford slept throughout this alleged break-in. Alleged? Are you suggesting there wasn't a break-in? If your honour will allow me to continue with my questions, the court will discover exactly what I am suggesting. It was the first time I had been in the least bit rude, even to a mere London Sessions judge, and the effect of it was like that on a young girl who takes her first gulp of champagne. I'm afraid it went straight to my head. I think the jury will want to know what time Mr. Rochford went to sleep, having had his Horlicks, and why he woke at two o'clock, just as my client was loading the last of several items removed from the shop without disturbing the witness who, I imagine, must have put a good slug of whiskey in his Horlicks. <laughs> Mr. Rumpel! You must learn that London Sessions is not a theatre. Your client is facing a serious charge, and you would do well to take it seriously. Of course, Your Honour. But I hope you'll allow me to ask the witness if he knows a Mr Terry Malloy. Daisy Sampson, for all her red lips and seductive ways, had done her research well. Terry Malloy was the owner of the radio shop in Brixton. Do you have any relevant questions, Mr. Rumpole? I think it's relevant to ask the witness if it was Mr. Malloy who showed him the photograph of Cyril Timpson that enabled the witness to pick him out at an identity parade. The witness, of course, denied everything I suggested, and the trial wound its slow way onwards, until I summed up with a peroration I've used with a few essential adjustments in hundreds of cases since. Members of the jury... You will soon be back to your normal lives, and you'll have forgotten all about the radio and television shop in Cold Harbour Lane. But for Cyril Timpson, the frightened elderly man I represent, this is one of the most important moments of his life. Can you send him to prison on this evidence, in this strange and unusual case? Members of the jury... I leave the future life of Uncle Cyril Timpson in your hands, and I am confident that your verdict will be not guilty. The jury gave Cyril what he said he wanted, two years in prison, safe and sound. <laughs>
telephone. Is that you, Bernard? Mr. Rumpole, I was <laughs> just about to phone you. I've got a bit more about the dead navigator, David Galloway. Uh, never mind Galloway. I want you to find out all you can about the backgrounds and war records of all the officers who were at that party in Penge. Can you do that? I'll do it for you, Mr. Rumpole. But will you be able to use all that information? Ah, Bonnie, Bonnie, Bonnie. In a trial like this, who knows what's going to happen. I said that, of course, because I still had no clear idea of what I was looking for. In the defence of Simon Gerald, and in the pursuit of a female companion. Do you know, you never ask me out nowadays, Horace. Hmm? In the hallway of the Horse Ferry Road Magistrates' Court, Daisy Sampson uttered a sigh of regret. <laughs> and I've done all I can to give you my briefs. <laughs> I ignored the old joke. And the Timpsons think the sun shines out of your backside now. They're decent, hard-working minor criminals and they should give you lots of jobs. So why don't you ask me out? Because the last time I did, you waltzed away with Reggie Proudfoot. Mm. He's not a gentleman, that Reggie Proudfoot. Definitely not a gentleman. He took me out to dinner, the Regent Palace Hotel, mm. then pretended he'd forgotten his wallet. Hey. So I had to pay every penny. You'd never treat a girl like that, would I'm you? I'm sure I wouldn't. <laughs> I looked at her inviting red lips, drawn back from the teeth that had never suffered restraint. The small, heart-shaped face and the eyes full of mischief. Who's that? I made a quick calculation of the fees I'd already received from small jobs, plus what I was likely to gain from losing the Timpson case, and thought of how much I'd be saved by more evenings boiling <clears throat> eggs on the gas ring. Perhaps you'd like to have dinner with me? The Regent Palace. I was thinking more in terms of the Hibernian hostelry. Suits me. I've never seen where you live. I've got a bedsit not far from here. There's <laughs> a gas ring and the bed. Well, of course, the bed's in the sitting room. That sounds convenient. And my landlady owns a shop below that sells trusses, wooden legs and rubber johnnies. <gasps> That sounds very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> on which happy note, we settled on a date for dinner. I think I'll have the prawn cocktail followed by the steak and chips. I'll have the same. And a bottle of your finest Matthias Rosé. <laughs> oh, you're really spoiling me, Horace. Hmm. Can I have a Black Forest Gatto as well, if I've got room? <laughs> it was what followed the pudding that I was looking forward to. I had prepared myself by visiting my landlady's shop and buying a packet of three rubber jollies, hoping for their immediate assistance. But Daisy was showing a remarkable interest in Penge. If your leaders told you not to say a single word, why would you do so much preparation? I'm trying to find an answer to Whiston's question. What question was that? If young Gerald didn't shoot his father, then who on earth did? <laughs> but you're trying to get in touch with the other chap in the bomber, the navigator. Did I tell you that? Didn't you? I may have done. Anyway, he's no help. He died when the plane crashed and caught fire. By some miracle, Jerry and Charlie escaped from the blaze. So they were lucky. Well, death got them in the end. You uh, wanted to see where I live. Did I? And you said it would be convenient me having the bed in the sitting room, so... Would you like to see it now? 
Will it take long? It'll take just as long as we want it to take. Taxi! <laughs> Welcome to my convenient home. I had honestly done my best. Fresh sheets, some dusting, a jug of chrysanthemums on the bedside table. I considered scattering rose petals, but decided against it for reasons of economy. It's、uh, very nice, Horace. <laughs> I'm sure you must be.、Mm. Oh, oh. I've got another bottle of Matthias Rosé. Would you like a, a drink? Daisy was consulting、oh, her watch. Is that the time?、Mm. Not a good sign. I'm sorry. There's his party with clients at the 400. Hey. I promised to join them after dinner.、Uh, oh, good night, Horace. And she、Daisy? was off down the stairs. I sat on the bed, and drank the wine, and thought about the three rubber johnnies in my wallet. All stand. The British can be relied on to produce regular events for the entertainment of the public: cricket at Lords, the pantomime on Boxing Day, and a murder trial staged in Court Number One at the Old Bailey. It plays to packed houses. News of it fills the daily papers, and then, after guilty headlines, it disappears into history. Put up, Simon Gerald. I sat behind my so-called leader, C. H. Whiston Q.C. I glanced up at the public gallery and saw Hilda making herself comfortable in the front row of the dress circle. Next to Whiston sat the prosecutor, Daisy's dancing partner, Reggie Proudfoot. Emerging from a door with half a smile on his thin, cruel face, was the judge, Lord Jessop. Yes, Mr. Proudfoot. The counsel for the prosecution began his opening speech and told the jury what they could look forward to in the course of the next few days. And we shall be calling the ex-RAF officers who attended the post-theatre party in Penge. All those who survived will tell you that they saw Simon Gerald, the young man in the dock. Pointing the Luger pistol at his father, and I'm afraid, threatening to kill. Hilda's daddy had charged me to take a note, so I was writing down almost every word that Reggie Proudfoot uttered. The prosecution case is that when all the guests had gone, this boy came out of his bedroom, <coughs> regained possession of the Luger, Prosecution Exhibit One, and seeing his father still sitting at the fireside, stood over him. And shot him through the heart. This was a passage I underlined heavily. And then I noticed my leader whispering into the ear of our clerk Albert, who'd entered the court and seemed troubled. As did the judge, Mr. Whiston.、Uh, my lord, I, I'm sorry. It seems I might be in some kind of difficulty. My clerk has just told me I have an important application in the court of appeal tomorrow morning. A planning application. However,、uh, there is no controversy about the medical evidence in this case, so my learned junior, Mr. Horace Rumpole, <clears throat> will be able to take a careful note of what the doctor says. I'm glad to hear it. Happily, members of the jury, we are to be spared the confusion of medical men who disagree. <laughs> the first ex-RAF officer who entered the witness box was one Timothy Wardle. He told how young Simon pointed the luger at his father, 
and uttered a threat to kill. When Reggie Proudfoot finished with Wardle, it was my leader's chance to cross-examine. Yes, Mr. Whiston. Magazine of bullets. Ask him if the gun was loaded. What's that? It's in the notes I gave you. Members of the jury, there appears to be some kind of dispute in the defense team, in which case perhaps the prosecution would have Mr. Wardle available tomorrow morning when Mr. Whiston returns from the Court of Appeals? Certainly, my lord. I just thought the evidence about the bullets was important. As I've tried to tell you, we are agreeing with everything that happened at that party. Now, you promised me you won't attack the medical evidence. Dr. Percival Fillimore is not a man whose opinion should ever be questioned. Then I'll treat him with the respect he deserves. Excellent. I'll be back from the appeal court as soon as I can. It's a vital matter. Do you think the client understands that? Simon Gerald seemed to understand very little as we said goodbye. He stared at the ground between his feet in silence. But I... I felt a kind of excitement, as though the next day offered a chance, if I could only grab it, of great importance in the Rumpole career. The cause of death was a bullet wound to the heart, and that occurred approximately five or six hours before the body of Mr. Gerald was brought to the mortuary. The wound had clearly been made by the German bullets preserved and exhibited. Thank you, Dr. Fillimore. Just a moment, Doctor. Yes? Mr. Rumpole, is it? We understood from your learned leader that you agreed with the medical evidence. Of course, my lord. I have just a few questions. Looking back down the long corridor of history to my early days as a white wig and my finest hour in court, I have come to the conclusion that life is just a game of chance. By what ill fortune was there a Luger pistol with a magazine full of bullets available in the Pinch bungalow on the night that young Simon Gerald had a quarrel with his father? If Daisy Sampson hadn't danced away from me in the inner temple hall, might I have so impressed Hilda that she'd recommend me to her father? And if he hadn't been called away to the Court of Appeal, would I ever have been able to cross-examine the great forensic oracle, Dr. Percival Fillimore? In part one of Rumpole and the Penge Bungalow Murders by John Mortimer, the elder Horace Rumpole was played by me, Timothy West, and the younger Horace Rumpole was Benedict Cumberbatch. C.H. Whiston was played by Geoffrey Whitehead, Albert the Clerk, Andy de la Tour, Simon Gerald, Ewan Bailey, and Daisy, Emma Fielding. Hilda Whiston was Jasmine Hyde, Reggie Proudfoot was Stephen Critchlow, Bonnie Bernard was Matthew Morgan, Judge Cookson, Carl Johnson, and Lord Jessop was David Shaw Parker. Rumpole and the Penge Bungalow Murders was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs>